Hello and welcome to In the Art Scene podcast, an art podcast that has it all. I'm your host, Galina Marquez, and I invite fascinating people to talk about their personal creative journeys, success stories, and inspiration. We talk about art business and marketing, how to find your creative voice, and all the new trends in the art world, like NFT, AI, and such. Join me and my guest for today's conversation. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to In the Art Scene podcast. And I am having a textile artist with me today, which I believe we haven't had any textile artists on the show yet. So please welcome Susan Hansel uh, from Minneapolis. Uh, she's got quite a career uh, and her work is absolutely like I've never seen anything like that. It's textile plus sculpture plus, uh, I don't know, very abstract, very, um, very tactile i i really want to i really want to touch it <laughs> i don't know if it's allowed though but <laughs> it is it is allowed uh, thank you for having me galena i mean as an artist i mean i know artists who are very white glove about it you know don't don't even you know point your finger at it not me not me as artists we work with the materials all the time that's so, right yes you know so i do actually want people to touch i mean there have to be limitations if there's a hundred people in a room. No, maybe we don't want a hundred people touching it today. Or but. or one toddler. Or what exactly? <laughs> with chocolate on their fingers. <laughs> uh, well, actually, I stay corrected. We did have a textile artist on on the show very recently, so that will be a, a great um, uh, juxtaposition of uh, what you do to what we have heard uh, on the show before. So please introduce yourself and and describe your art to our listeners who can't see it right now. Okay, well, I am indeed Susan Hensel, who wound up in Minneapolis about 20 years ago after living 40 years in Michigan and growing up in the Finger Lakes of New York. So I've been sort of working my way northwest. Um, I work... For probably for the last 10 or 15 years in digital textiles. And what that means is that I design for a computer-aided embroidery machine and I stitch it out. And then I take that fabric that I have designed and I turn it into things. Now, the things they are turned into are pre-planned, um, but never come out the way I planned them because it's art. You know, so, but the process um, of digital embroidery really is simply that stuff you see on baseball caps, sweatshirts, monograms, on things. That's what it's mainly used for. And about, I want to say 10 years ago, but I don't know for sure, I was at the Minnesota State Fair, which is a huge undertaking it's the size of a small town and um you you become a minnesotan kind of officially by going to the state fair just saying so i so i was at the state fair as an interloper and i went to the demonstration building where they show off ginzu knives vacuum um food preservation all all kinds of things the new gizmos And I rounded a corner and I saw a Donald Duck being stitched out on an embroidery machine. Mm -hmm. And it was a a pretty large image, you know, probably 10 inches. And nobody was attending the machine and it was stitching away. And and 
that isn't what really attracted me, although I loved the sound of it. It was the color of his shirt. It was the most amazing blue I've ever seen in my life. And I knew at that moment that I was in trouble because I needed to possess this ability. I I didn't know quite what I was going to do with it, but I could just see the glimmers of something that was important. And so I tried like crazy to get a grant for the machine. I didn't succeed there. So I got a five-year same-as-cash loan for my first machine. And then I did get a grant for my first piece of software that was Mac native because I am a Mac person. And it was a lousy piece of software, but I fulfilled the grant. I made it. I got the show up on time, just barely, by the skin of my teeth. (laughs) (laughs) Because it was hard to get um, the information I needed in order to do this. All of the training that they tell you that they will provide with these machines is about how to put the teddy bear on the baby's, you know, onesie or uh-huh. or the logo on the baseball hat. And that isn't what I was doing. So I fulfilled my grant. I was able to begin to get original designs onto things, but I knew there was more. I knew there was more. And One of the things I gift myself with every year, because it is way cheaper than therapy, is a week to two weeks at a cabin at Lake Superior. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm in a big city, and I did not grow up in a big city. And I just need to get out of Dodge at least once a year. And being by big water, which you've got available without yes. having to drive too horribly far. Yes. Um, always we were spoiled. <laughs> yeah, it's it just is what I need. And when I go there, I set it up as kind of a, a residency for myself. I have pets. You can't take your pets to your residency, but you can to this particular cabin. So I go with a small machine and my computer, which now is a PC for doing digitizing, and I make discoveries. And when I was there one year, I sort of set up an idea for myself that I just wanted to work with color and gradients with the stitching to see what would happen. And I began developing, you know, some lovely flat colors, but then I started bending them. And then I realized, oh, I could design these with permanent bends. And I'm stitching for these pieces on polyester felt, which will take a permanent fold. And so I brought what I know about origami and about book arts into it because I'm a well-known book artist. That's what's in collections all over the United States. And I started applying that. And as soon as you bend these things, the physics of color comes into play and the the embroidery thread acts almost like a cross between a prism and a lenticular lens the thread is triangular of all things in cross section so that when you have donald duck's blue which was the most ultra ultramarine blue i've ever seen when you bend that um you begin to get various shades of that ultramarine blue from a single thread. And so I'm developing things with 
uh, gradients of, say, blue and various pinks on a black or a purple felt, you get a huge chroma there when you begin to bend it. And so the, the work becomes kind of mesmerizing. And I took it out on the rocky beach and I took pictures of it. I went, wow, now I know where I'm going. And it was back to my sculptural roots for sure. So that's kind of what I do and how I got here. That's that's fascinating. So and and to me is is fascinating twice because I am somewhat familiar with the commercial embroidery from back from my marketing days. And actually sure. 20 years ago when I was just starting, uh um I worked at the company who had this um, machines doing exactly that, patches and uh oh, yeah. baseball hats and uh, whatnot. And we had a designer who was uh, a commercial designer by trade, but you know, on his spare time he was actually uh, a tattoo artist uh-huh. and it was interesting because he was playing with the software to uh to digitize uh of all things icons yeah like like christian icons to yeah. make a patch oh my goodness with, yes yes with all the you know the shades the the skin colors uh, yeah. the folds of the fabrics it was just mind-boggling to me, and it yeah. is still mind-boggling. And uh, like to me, when you were when you were talking about uh, your process, my first uh, like my first light bulb was like, "What the heck? She has a commercial embroidery machine." <laughs> I do, I do. And then and then looking even at your uh, backdrop right now, uh, I am like, "This is." An enormous amount of work on the computer to to do what what is behind you right now. Yeah, this is, yeah. This is absolutely fantastic. You look at all of those gradients there. Oh and the gosh. Textures. Yeah, and it's got such depth because yeah. of what that thread does. Even without bending the fabric, it has visual depth that is amazing. I had no idea it's triangular, actually. Yeah, I didn't either for several years. And I started really investigating I mean, how thread is made. I mean, I know how thread is made. I actually am a hand spinner in my spare time because it's fun, you know. And so I know how cotton and wool threads are made. But I started investigating what happens with these polyester threads and why do they look so different, even from the old rayon threads that were mm-hmm. used in embroidery. And, and I finally found the, the answer, and it is that it's basically a triangular cross-section. They're called trilobal threads. Wow. So they have three parts. So obviously, even if it's not a perfect triangle, it's going to just scatter yeah. light everywhere, wow. which means you're going to get different, slightly different colors everywhere it's and then you know, I apply uh, I think it's called simultaneous contrast or something but pointillism essentially so you put different colors next to each other and your brain blends them in different ways and so I'm working with that but in terms of the time and the complexity um to me I'm just drawing you know the the software is kind of like Photoshop, and kind of like Adobe Illustrator. Mm-hmm. And I'm pretty good at Photoshop. I understand the layers and drawing and layers. Um, Illustrator still eludes me after this many years. It doesn't match my brain somehow. So it took me a while to get 
a grip on this. But once I I realized I was just drawing with with thread and you know each stitch no matter how complex the outcome is it's two holes in a line. That's it. So we're drawing in straight lines anyways and the program allows you to do fills of various kinds rather like you can do in Photoshop. Mm-hmm. And once I understood that I went, "Oh, I can do this." And it lays it out visually for you, for all of us visual people, in layers. So there's this sidebar that goes, here's here's a little stitch thing you did, and then underneath it is another stitch thing you did, and underneath it is another. And you can move those around to see how it changes. That's amazing. So it's very intuitive in the end, and it's intuitive at the machine also, because I'm, I've been doing this art thing in general, for more than 50 years. And so I'm I'm at home with how my brain works in contact with materials and composition. So I I don't often plan these things out in a big way like I did in my 20s. In my 20s, I I drew everything to scale. I knew every step, you know, what comes first, what comes second. Now it's like whatever. I have a vague idea going in, and sometimes I'll stop the machine in the middle and just go, you're done, because there's that intuitive process that can go on. Or you'll get to the end of a of a design, and you'll go, ooh, need some more, and I'll go back to the machine before I take it out, but back to the computer before I take it out of the machine, and I'll quick digitize it, a little area that I need to put in there, and I can put it in the machine make sure it's in the right place, and I can stitch more. Um, So it can be an extremely intuitive process. And that's kind of how I work. I mean, my drawing is intuitive. All of my sculptures, because I'm trained as a sculptor, mainly. And, you know, I don't really measure. I just build and make them work. And, and I compare sides and all that and I work totally intuitively with a ruler of course I do but within limits yeah well I I like I like the idea of the intuitive ruler (laughs) (laughs) and I have to I have to apologize for labeling you at the beginning as a textile artist because I I see how much more goes into it you're working digitally so much and actually I have a question how long does it take you to create a design because uh, uh even even uh by the sculpture that is on your backdrop right now and yeah. on your website there are so many absolutely intricate um uh, sculptures that i i discovered uh they are all it's not one piece they're all um consist of different little pieces um mm-hmm. of embroidery so how how long does it take you to create one sculpture or well, a design for one's culture. Right. The design, in truth, is not that long. Although I will tell you that when I'm digitizing, I lose time. Because it's one of the things that um, creatively sucks me in so far that I might start at one in the afternoon and suddenly go, what, it's five? You know, yeah. it's 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 that kind of process for me, which does surprise me. But it uh, it suits me. So the designs themselves really only take, I would say, a few hours to 
a couple of days to perfect in the computer. And it's not all day. I work on multiple projects at once for sure. And then the output will take much longer to come out just of the machine than it does to design it. Um, My largest hoop is almost four feet wide. Wow. Yeah. And that takes, um, depending on how thick the design is, that will definitely take more than a day to stitch out. If I have a design or multiple designs in that hoop, it'll usually take a couple of days. Um, and and to complete something, because I am so intuitive, you know, it can take months. Um, the piece that you're looking at behind me, I had that wood piece for several years. It's, um, for those of you who can't see it, it's, the piece is called firmament, as looking up at the night sky, looking at the firmament. And the wood piece is um, an antique pipe mold that I found. Ah, that's what sale. it is. <gasps> that's what it is. That's, and it's that's gorgeous. Fascinating. It is. And I just picked it up because it was beautiful. I got two molds at that sale, which kind of started me down this route, but it took me several years to know what it was I was going to do with these things. And I almost gave this to a friend for Christmas, um, just mold, because she coveted it. And all of a sudden, I knew what to do with it. And I had had it for at least three years. So I refinished it. I, you know, I sanded it down. I painted the inside. And I made the piece that fits in the bottom of it. And that's just over a bunch of um, styrofoam. You know, I, I, you know, I, I drew put the mold down on a piece of paper to make a template. Mm-hmm. So I didn't have to measure that. I just drew around the mold. <laughs> and then I drew my template and I was able from that to make my design. And I just made sure I left lots of extra fabric on the side to wrap around whatever I wound up wrapping around, which wound up being several layers of styrofoam. And, and that fit. And I was like, okay, that's cool, but something's missing. And then I went to um, a box. I I have many boxes of things that didn't work or were experiments that I wanted to hold on to. And I also don't want to throw this stuff in the landfill. It's going to take generations to break down. Yeah. Yeah, So I try to use up absolutely everything and donate what I can't use to schools and things. And I found one of these little diamond shapes um, that is filling in the uh, depression where the pipe would have been formed. Mm -hmm. And they're sort of star-shaped, but what they are are just little four-inch squares with folds. Little universes, almost. Yeah, and they just... And I propped them up on some recycled cardboard tubes, you know? (laughs) And and so it comes together, and I think there's a little bit of brass and and stuff on. Yeah, that there's a brass. Uh, what do you call it? A filter that you put inside a hose. Uh-huh. Yeah, like you know your garden hose. They always uh-huh. have these little filters. So a brass filter and a few beads here and there, just to give a little bit more um, that, dimension. 
That's fascinating. And and for for anyone who can't see it right now, I'll make sure to put this image down in the show notes. So after or during your listening to this episode, go to the In the Art Scene podcast, find the blog post for this episode, and you will see what we're talking about. Because yeah, yeah. The description is amazing, but you guys, you have to see it. It's it's yeah. just fantastic. Well, and it was just published in um, Fiber Art Now, which is lovely. Also, the magazine Fiber Art Now. Oh, if you have a link to that article, that would be awesome sure. too. Yeah, sure. absolutely. Yeah, I'll write that down um, and I'll send that to you. Yeah, yeah, because this one does get around for sure. And I exhibit, you know, all over the United States and a little bit in Europe. And, if, you know, you make the work, somebody's got to see it as far as I'm concerned. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Well, um I kind of want to drill down a little bit because while we were talking about your textile experiments and sculptures, you dropped, you know, very casually things that you are intuitive drawer, you are a sculptor, you are a bookmaker. Uh, so I like, can you can you shine some light on those things as well? <laughs> How many media am I proficient in? Is I mean, that... I mean yeah, you might you yeah. must have yeah, a body well, of work know. in all those medias too. And you said that right. the books that books uh, that was something that was first known about you, right? That you're yeah yeah. yeah well, I, I I haven't seen any, so I'm really curious. Yeah, um, as a sculptor, I, I think this is true of most sculptors. Um, we are very materially oriented, and so what attracts us is not as much surface as messing with the stuff mm -hmm. and messing with the tools. And, and what happens is that we wind up being trained, even in college, in a lot of different, I'm going to use a fancy word, modalities. <laughs> we're, we're trained in a lot of stuff, okay? When I was in college, they wouldn't let women touch the power tools, unfortunately, but... This we, is so uh, oh oh you know I'm come old. on <laughs> I'm 72 I'm an, I'm majoring in sculpture and they go yeah you know you can't use that that's such a BS come on uh, of course it was <laughs> of course it was but we were allowed to use you know tin snips and snip tin and you know drills and things and so we wind up being um, trained in a lot of different materials and when I came out of college what I what I did was I actually worked in pottery for probably 20 years, um, doing both porcelain dinnerware and porcelain sculptural objects. And when I had completed what I really needed to do in, in porcelain, when it was becoming not the right medium for what I needed to do, I transitioned into paper making and artist books. Because at that stage in my life, I had more that I needed to say. So it combined the performative aspect of the book, you know, because you have to hold that book and turn those pages in order to access what's in there. So as an artist, I'm controlling how you access and I'm I'm helping you get into the general arena of where I want you to get to. And through a combination of image, performance, and text. And um, I never cared if you got to exactly where I was 
Because as a good reader, I expect you to bring your experiences and you'll get within the ballpark, as I like to say. And those were very successful and they're limited edition. Um, you can find them in collections in universities and nonprofits all over the United States. Uh, and you can also find them um, at, um, oh, I'd have to look it up. I all, all of a sudden can't read. SusanHenseldesign.com. It's mm-hmm. sort of, a, it's a website I don't advertise much anymore, but all of the books are on there. Perfect. The I'll put the link books. in the show notes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and from, and that changed actually when I moved here, because when you change, when you move your studio, you are at risk of changing how you work. And I moved from East Lansing, Michigan to Minneapolis, which is a book arts center. It's one of the major ones in the United States. And everyone expected that that was why I was moving here. And certainly it was helpful. Um, But I was moving here because it is a community that um, is generally supportive of the arts. They would be horrified if the arts went away, unlike in Michigan, where they were legislating over and over again to get rid of, you know, the Detroit Institute of Arts and close their collection, sell off their collection, close down Orchestra Hall in Detroit because they weren't paying their way. And here, while things will be cut back when when there are problems, they're never eliminated because there would be such an uproar. So I needed to live where what I value is valued by the community. And so I moved here for that. And I opened a gallery here, a bricks and mortar gallery, in order to continue my gallery work that I had started in Michigan and also to get to know more people. I, you know, I knew two people here when I moved here. So I needed to get inserted in the community. And for about nine years, I ran a gallery that was devoted to the narrative in artwork and to challenging work. So I I didn't shy away from the political. In fact, I moved here in a election year, so it was great. You know, one of the first shows was on electoral politics. <laughs> um, another show that I did for several years as a group show I was called Leap of Faith, whatever that would mean to somebody, and got lots of interesting things. And I continued for many years um, Reader's Art, which I ran for 10 years, starting in Michigan. And then I handed it off to the Minnesota Center for Book Arts um, when I closed down the bricks and mortar part of the gallery. And I think they've let it go now, but that was a national, international call for art for many years. And um, about, well, before the pandemic, so I would say it could be almost nine years ago, I shut down the bricks and mortar part of the gallery because I really needed to be back in the studio more. And I shared space, you know, with with the gallery. And I loved every moment of running the gallery. And I got my people, you know, that next leg up. That's what I'm good at is getting people the chinks on their resume, helping them promote themselves, getting their getting their names known. And I loved it, but I couldn't do that and my work as well. And I loved my work that much more. 
And so I've returned to full-time studio practice instead of trying to sneak it in the corners of when I could work. And then um, with the pandemic, um, I reopened the gallery, but as an online space. And so the gallery, SusanHenselGallery.com is also on Artsy, and that's its primary space, mm. is on Artsy.net. And I represent five or six Midwest artists because there's lots of great artwork here that just doesn't get seen on either coast because we're in the middle of the country. And so I promote that. And now it's artists who have a particular focus on materiality. So I've got sculptors, printmakers who do handwork, hand stitching. I've got, um, that's Ingrid um, Restemeyer. She's got lovely work. Um, yeah, I think it's it's on the front page of your gallery yeah, website yeah, right now. Yeah, she's the show yes. that's up now. Her yeah. show's up extra long because in February, I broke my leg. Oh, oh. I, I am not yet totally mobile. So she, instead of having a two-month show, she's having something like a four-month show. Oh. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> um, I've got the next person up is a fiber artist, um, Nina Martine Robinson, who does a variety of fiber works in three dimensions. And then comes Daphne Coop, who is a wood artist who uses all reclaimed wood and glass, and she carves it and paints it and makes objects for the wall. Um, and she's out traveling the country this year, going to various art art fairs. The you know beyond the art festival we do in our backyards, you know the next level up to see where she belongs. And so she's just gotten back from Atlanta, and I think she's going to Chicago and to Dallas and maybe out near you. I can't remember if she's going all the way to California. I'll I'll look her up. Yeah, I do. She's got lovely work. Lovely work. So and Kim Matthews, who's a sculptor. So that's our group right now. How yeah. how do you select artists to represent? Um I have to love their work. That's what it boils down to. And do they I'm have just, to be local to Midwest or I mean I'm doing just Midwest because I want to keep it small. Um because I am 72. How much longer do I really want to do this part? Not sure after breaking my leg how much longer. <laughs> you know, unless I get another really crackerjack assistant. Um but I I want them to have an approach that is somewhat unique something that I feel like the rest of the world needs to see. So with Ingrid Restemeyer, I've loved her work for years. She was one of the first artists that I met when I moved here. And she does very small, little, um, they're actually dry points, most of them. She does hand etching on, mostly on plexiglass, which gives mm -hmm. you a different kind of ink wipe. And I recognized it immediately because, yes, I'm trained in printmaking too, because, you know, that's that's one of the things I studied. And I, I understood it right away. And they're small. They're these little things. And she she works up collages and basically done on the press, sheen collet, with handmade papers. And then she hand stitches into them. Oh, wow. And she's done this for years. And it's a slow, slow process. Um, she works in corporate America. She works for... Best Buy, and I can't remember what she does. It's somewhere deep in the marketing department. And she comes home and does slow things. And they're gorgeous. And I had seen Daphne Coop's work separately, and it turns out they're best friends. Who knew? 
Um, but I'd seen her work for years and had fallen in love with it because the mark of the hand is everywhere on it. I mean, it's meaty, it's, it's heavy duty work. And, um, Daphne is this tall, reed thin person who looks like a dancer. I don't think she is, but she's got that build and she's kinetic. Yeah. She's got to move. She's one of those people and you see it in her work and it's so strong and kim is a sculptor who works at a very modest size and she too works in corporate america and, and has learned how to be productive in those little bits of time and she actually works in concrete over um styrofoam bases and then she meticulously hand paints these geometries that that have to do with color theory and form. And they take her months to complete. Fascinating. And they're part of her, in a way, they're part of her meditation practice. She's been a meditator for maybe 30 years, 20 or 30 years. And she sees it as an outgrowth of that practice. I I can totally see how it works. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I'm I'm so in awe of of people like this because knowing about myself that I'm, I'm absolutely not patient person if i if i don't finish a painting in one sitting it goes to trash i all mm -hmm. paint over or something mm -hmm. well my drawings are like that definitely they they're where i get my yayas out i mean just like jam they're out you know so yeah and i don't show the drawings very much um they're so different from the other stuff i do and um, they're very, very organic. And so my search um, over the last year and going forward is to find where that sweet spot is that that combines some of the organic with this highly technical stuff that I love, that I love. And I know there's a place. haven't found it yet. I, I'm getting there, though, you know, by combining plaster objects with it or carved objects with it. So we'll see. We'll see where it goes. But yeah, it's all a, it's all a search. Yeah. And, and one thing always leads to another. The, you know, we talked a long time about digitizing the designs. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, you can go back in and start where you stopped and you can change the colors or you can bend it differently. You can make it larger, make it smaller, you can cut it up visually. And so that Repetition becomes easier to do because of that part of the process. And clearly, you know, I'm doing a lot of work with this blue and gold um, palette because I just haven't exhausted it yet. There's so much that I can do with it. Every time I finish something, there's another place to go. Yeah. It, you know, it's just, it, it's just more. There's yet more. Hey, In The Arts and listeners, I just wanted to say a quick thank you for all the support you've given me in the past year. It means more than you know. Every donation through Buy Me A Coffee and every purchase of swag helps me keep up with the production and put out a new episode every week. And I certainly appreciate if you will keep doing it. But I also feel that if you like the show this much, you deserve a little more than just a thank you. This is why I launched a Patreon page 
there will be monthly live Q&As, exclusive content, and for the hardcore fans, I got some swag and keepsakes. I love this community that we are building together. And by joining my Patreon, you will help me create more content for you. Go to patreon.com slash in the art scene and join today. We talked a lot about your uh, experiments and discoveries and uh, your background in sculpture. But uh, when and how, what was that moment when you first um, decided that you were going to make a sculpture out of your stitchings? I kind of, I knew that actually when I saw that Donald Duck. So my grant actually um, for the software, my outcome was an installation that uh -huh. had the embroidery as part of it. I developed, it, it was a little complicated. It was called um, Wearing My Age. And I developed a uniform of a jacket, a dress, and a petticoat that a woman might wear to work at one of the four decades of a work life, because it's approximately 40 years or so for us. And, and they were identical, except for what they said on them. So the jacket had kind of the public face. And I, I did a national survey of people asking them what they wore to work, mm -hmm. what it meant to them. Were they required to wear a uniform? How did it make them feel? How were they treated at work? Those kinds of things. And so the outside would say things like, you know, I'm the smartest person that ta at the table who's never listened to. And on the dress, it got just a little bit more personal. It might say things down at the bottom. I made these um, circular um, kind of Ouroboros kind of images that had text that said things like, I really feel much more pretty, much more beautiful when I wear my good underwear to work or, so, you know, weird mm -hmm. things. And then on the petticoat, which was bright red. It was really personal. And sometimes it was very angry under there, like, you, you know, you never listened to me, you know. And um, everything was indigo dyed, uh -huh. and the petticoat was scarlet. Wow. And, and I developed the dresses, and they hung from the ceiling, and they, they had uh, leggings under them that matched, and they hung over platforms and through the leg of each of them was a very thick red rope because this, these were women's stories and the platforms had a lot of the, the text on them that I'd gotten from the survey. I mean, there were funny ones like um, about aprons, for instance. Mm -hmm. So there were people who worked in the cafeteria at a mm -hmm. nearby high school answered the survey and, and I'm not sure how it got there, but somebody saw it and shared it. And they said, as soon as I put on my apron and go to work in the cafeteria, um, I'm the stupidest person on the block and I have a PhD. Wow. And for somebody else, it was as soon as I put on my apron and walk in the studio, I'm in control. And that was a potter. And she and she also said, but when I take it off and I have to do have to talk with people in a sales environment or at an opening, I feel really stupid. <laughs> And then chefs would write about putting on their chef coats. I feel in control when I put on my chef coat. But when I take it off, I'm a nobody. 
you know, it was it was fascinating. Um, just these quotidian things, these daily things that have meaning that we don't think about. Yes, when I put on an apron, I know, oh God, you're gonna make a really big mess you have on your good clothes. <laughs> so yeah. So I I thought of it as clothing as a broadcast medium because we dress to communicate on some level. And that is true, yes. Yeah, we really do. And so what are we broadcasting when we dress? And I decided to ask people. And so there they were hanging from the ceiling. And I dressed in one of them for the opening and stood on the platform. So, I Oh, my God. I need to see a photo of that. It's somewhere hidden on the website. Look under the installations part. Okay. I'll... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, do you, want, do you mind if I me. do you mind if I put it in the show notes? Oh no, go right ahead. Awesome. It, it's where the embroidery started. And I broke more needles, wasted more materials than you have and you could even imagine. But I got through it. I because I knew nothing, nothing about this machine embroidery when I started. I just knew its potential. I just knew its potential. How many machines do you own now? I own three. Three. Yeah. I have a single needle, which is that first machine. Mm-hmm. And um, it's kind of a lousy machine, really. It's it's always been a bit of a lemon, but it is the one I take up to the cottage with me to try things out. Um, then I graduated to a wonderful 10-needle machine, um, which I still use really a lot. And it will make things up to about 10 inches wide. That's its maximum size. And the advantage to 10 needles, 15 needles, whatever, is that you don't have to keep threading the needle. Each one of those needles does one color. And each of those needles, because the machines are scary looking, they got all these dials and mm-hmm. things on them. They, they just look horrifying. Each one of those needles is a separate sewing machine. And each one of those di- set of dials, that's just the... um the tension that's inside your normal machine. That's what's going on behind the plastic of your normal sewing machine. So once I do that, I wasn't as scared. And so I I began to learn how to do that. And when you make the design, you know, you're, you're telling it to stitch this part red. And then the next one, you might be saying stitch this part blue and the machine reads that. And so it just, it cuts off the red, goes over to the blue and stitches the blue. So it just switches from one needle to another. Yeah, yeah, just Mm -hmm. one at a time. And then my commercial machine is a 15-needle machine, and I don't care that it's 15. It's that it has a hoop that's almost four feet wide and uh, 22 inches tall. So I can do big things. And I always work in parts. I work in modules. And I, I think I always have, even in college I did. It was a, it's a great way for someone who isn't even five feet tall to upsize things. And, and it also gives you toys to play mm-hmm. with. You know, I got more of them. Oh, good. What if I had a hundred? You know, those are the things that go through my mind. Yeah. Yeah. You know, oh, that is so cool. What if I had a bunch of them? You know, what if I stapled them all up on the wall? What would it look like? Oh, my gosh. You know, I get so excited. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Fascinating. Fascinating. So um, 
What are you working on right now or planning on? It's more what am I planning on? Because I'm still between a wheelchair and a walker with this broken leg. I'm so sorry. Oh, well, yeah, those yeah. things take a little while to heal. Yeah, they do. They do. Yeah, I broke it in two places. So it takes oh. a while. <sighs> yeah. So I'm eight weeks out. I'm walking, but not well. You know, um, I am working on a a large piece that um, it's a, a bunch of layered circular forms and they're accordion folded mm-hmm. and and they're done in layers so that I have the largest circle is about 36 inches across and and then you kind of come in and they can be layered up on the wall to make a, a really good corporate artwork and I would like to fill a wall and I have three modules more or less done, but I fell just before I made the armature. So that's going to have to come <laughs> when I can stand up at the table saw or whatever. And I've got another piece in process that I had just ordered um, the wood for. I ordered in maple. A lot of my multimedia work with wood has been with mahogany. Um, but this piece is in um, some paler colors. It's pinks and greens and blue and i felt it really needed a maple piece to affix them to and it's fan objects and it will be part of uh probably the wayfinding series or the start of a new one i'm not sure mm-hmm. i'm not sure but those are in process and then there are a few other things sitting on the table that i'm just playing with to see what they need to be but while I'm confined to mostly sitting, yeah, I'm drawing and I'm making accordion books that eventually I will put covers on when I can stand up and cut the covers. <laughs> so it, it'll come. It'll come. But it, before that, I'll probably do my taxes, you know? That's, I, that's, yes. Yeah, because yeah, I had to <laughs> do whatever you call that, a delay on that. You know, I've had to call yeah. the the yeah, uh, so, tax prepare the day after I fell saying, yeah. oh, Mark. For, for, for everyone who's listening, we are recording on April 12th. So, yeah, yeah. Susan really yeah. needs to hurry. Yeah. Taxes. No, they won't. Be. I have a, an official <laughs> um, delay. I have to. But, <laughs> right. yeah, yeah. So your your process, uh, let alone the creativity, the the process of uh, uh, working and stitching and digitizing uh, it, it's just it's so unique. Mm-hmm. I don't uh, know anyone else doing it. I, yeah, th- that's what I was going to say. I I don't think anyone else is doing anything quite like that. So um, my question is: Are you teaching or planning to teach? Uh, this process to other artists not really at this stage i actually don't i don't mind sharing it frankly but i i don't want to teach right now um i do mentor one-on-one and um and that's more my speed right now uh and the uh, people i'm mentoring i'm mentoring a photographer who wants to figure out her next steps in terms of exhibiting her work she's a fairly recent MFA graduate and wants to know more about how the market works and where she should be looking and how to look for it and how to judge. And I'm working with a fiber artist whose goals are really just to have a couple of good shows a year in the area. But also, but for her, because she's got limited time to work, she's got a very complicated life. Um, 
how to look at things as bodies of work and how to develop them. And it's okay to be all over the map as long as you're developing bodies of work eventually. Um, because the your aesthetic still comes through, you know, and and so that's what we're working on there. Uh, how to talk about it, how to look at it, you know, and which ones are worth developing more. Yeah, but in terms of uh, uh, digital embroidery, have you ever yeah. had anyone interested in learning your process? And people visit fairly frequently, and they're kind of surprised. You know, they want to see it, um, and it is mesmerizing to watch. Um, the machines—they're um, very rhythmic. They're—they're kind of loud, but they're not. Uh, I mean, I did get a, a, a test done. They are not at a level that's going to damage your hearing. Um, but there, there's something mesmerizing about watching the needles going up mm -hmm. and down and, and the hoop kind of jittering back and forth. But it's also the sound because it goes kind of like a like a train. Like a, a train. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so I find it very soothing. Um, I've done a few open houses and, um, and on-site things where I've taken a machine and a computer and I've demonstrated and I've stitched out and people can go home with things but I don't know, nobody's asked and the way I teach which probably won't surprise you after talking to me this long is very intense I put everything into it and then I'm exhausted for a week afterwards <laughs> <laughs> because I you know I feel very obligated to the people who pay me I want them to get what they pay for because I have been very angry at teachers who come in and just dial it in. It's just, yeah. no, I don't dial it in. And I develop relationships with my students and I keep in touch for years. This is how I operate. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, one of my star students is out in Hawaii now, you know, Amazing. and and she's she's doing um, she got trained in art therapy. That's what she went on to do. But she was just one of the most amazing students I ever had. And we stay in touch. So, yeah, I don't dial it in. Well, yeah, if you were if you're getting an apprentice, it should be a dedicated one. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, when I have assistants, um it's usually one day a week because I'm not quite organized enough to organize beyond that. Um, but it's also a learning situation. And so it's mainly administration, but sometimes some hands-on stuff. And and it's all about what it takes to run a studio. And And they go on to do things. So I usually hire people who are just finishing up their undergrad. And and are you know, floundering a little bit. They aren't necessarily art students. Um, my latest one, who just moved to Scotland, uh, like the day before I fell, <laughs> um, she she was a, a poli sci major, and and now she's looking toward, you know, a maybe book conservation or some combination of library and archiving and hands-on and um as well as just all the data entry stuff that's part of that so it's that's kind of how I like to do it yeah yeah I I love to hear that you're mentoring uh artists from all all 
different mediums and all different yeah. directions yeah. because not not only in you know in the fiber arts or like whatever is close to you that you really bring up something in people that is already inside them it, it's amazing yeah well you know i think that um creativity is creativity and and we all have it in us whether it's i like to say whether it's how you set the table or how you sew something i mean it doesn't really matter um, we all have aesthetic impulses. And for some of us, it's overwhelming. I mean, I spend my whole day doing these things. Um, but we all have them. And so it is possible to mentor across media because the the things that make visual art exciting, um, there are commonalities of composition, of color, of contrast, of line, um, or of content. And so I've been at this a long time, and, I, and I'm clear it's from my point of view, but I'm also well-studied. You know, I study with Christie's, for crying out loud, about once a year just to get more information about the art market. And, and I can tell you if it's being done. And where I can tell you on some level where to look for your fit, um, which is why I feel comfortable working with this photographer. And she's crossing over with installation and textiles, but also with just some handheld things. She's mm -hmm. done some view masters that are wonderful. <laughs> so, you know, so she's got she's got the potential and she just um, I've worked with people who are working on grants and. And for your listeners, almost all artists, even the ones that you've heard of, have day jobs. That's normal. So don't beat yourself up. So it's how to do your art, even though you got all these obligations outside of the studio. And so with people who've gotten grants, it's been just how to fulfill. Yes, I know you have a day job. Who doesn't? I don't. I'm 72. Yay. But, <laughs> you know. Um, it's normal to have a day job. So mm -hmm. how are you going to get this done? Well, you're going to stop off at the studio on the way home from work every single day. And if all you do that day is sit there and look at your stuff and go, oh, God, but at least you've been there. And eventually you you establish the habit. You establish the habit. I think this is a precious advice for everybody who's listening. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, we tend to beat ourselves up, you know. Oh, but I have to have a day job. Yeah, of course you do. You know, a lot of the people in the Venice Biennale have day jobs. <laughs> Trust me. You know, they do. And and the other thing to keep in mind, and it's not that I've cracked the nut yet, but um, you know, all the East Coast and the big and they're all on the West Coast now too, galleries um say they don't look at portfolios. Okay, they don't look at portfolios. Um, but the reality is they always need new art. And they need new artists. So our job is to figure out how to crack that nut. Because there are wonderful artists everywhere. And they need us. So we aren't just supplicants. We are fulfilling a need. And they just don't know it yet. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, but that's the reality. They have to keep on bringing on the new. Right? Yes, that's true. Yes. Yeah. So. Oh, Susan, this is this is fantastic conversation. We are well, at the top you. of the hour. And I'm so, so grateful for you to coming on the show and sharing 
sharing your journey, your art, this fascinating uh, information about your process. It's just like uh, my my years are spinning right now. Like my. <laughs> Well, I because absolutely like, love. I've seen those. Yeah, I've seen those yeah. machines, and but I, I've only seen them in a the commercial application. I was like, oh my god! I well, just... I mean, just think. I mean, you're a painter. Think about that color, right? Yeah, I know the color of those threads is astonishing. Yeah, and I never thought of myself as a colorist until this happened. So <laughs> I feel like it happened to me. Right? It yeah. was a cataclysm, a lovely one, but. It was like a cataclysm. Well, on that note, let's wish this kind of cataclysm to everyone who's listening. Yes. <laughs> because eventually <laughs> eventually it should happen to every artist. And I you know, this so. is this is when we discover something in us and our yeah. work. Thank you again so much for sharing so much information. And thank you for the work you do uh with your medium and for other artists. Uh, it's it's amazing. So thank you, and we'll see you again in the art scene. Thank you, Galena. Been a pleasure. And for everybody, uh, go to the show notes because I am absolutely linking everything that we were talking about in the show notes. And there will be some um, uh, samples of Susan's work if you haven't seen this. I am just starting to put things on YouTube. So you may or may not find this video. But anyway, all the links and references and images will be in the show notes on intheartscene.com. It has been another episode of In the Art Scene Podcast. If you liked today's conversation, please give us a good review on Apple and go listen to other great stories. Check out our website intheartscene.com or follow us on Instagram at intheartscene for more content. If you are a creative and you want to share your story, shoot us a message from the website or DM us on Instagram. Look forward to seeing you next time in the art scene.